Hello, you gorgeous beings. My name is Felicia Malay, and this is Fierce Gentle, the Courageous Voice podcast, where we reclaim voice, courage, and power through conversations and poetry. I want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation, that this is and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, you beautiful beings, and welcome to episode one of Fierce Gentle, the Courageous Voice podcast. I have been so excited to launch this into the world, and this is my first interview uh, that I would be putting out there. I was trying to decide what order to put the guests on, uh, and I've just decided to do them in the order that I've actually recorded them in, because that feels like the most easeful way of doing it. Episode one, here we are. Um, my first guest is the incredible Farah Habaini, a spoken word poet and a master in my eyes of inciting open and curious conversations. I really believe that we could all benefit from having better conversations and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring her here uh, onto the podcast and share her with, with you. In the episode, we explore what it means to write our own stories for others to hear and what it means to leave our shoes at the door when we're asked to write other people's stories. We touch on grief and the power of asking questions and Farah explains her identity as a person living with disability alongside her identity as a woman from a Muslim background and the both challenging and beautiful elements of that intersection. For me, Farah is a beautiful and living example of fierce, gentle communication and courageous living, and I'm really excited to share our conversation with you. Enjoy. Great. Hello, beautiful. Hello, Felicity. Welcome to the Fierce Gentle podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. It's so amazing to be with you, Felicity. I'm so excited about this. So Farah, I first met you in the poetry community doing spoken word and poetry and I have so many stunning and beautiful memories of my interactions with you over the last few years, but I would love for you to give uh, the listeners, my beautiful listeners, hello beautiful listeners, um, an overview or a little bit of an understanding of who you identify as being. It's always a big question, Felicity, but I'll try my best. Um... At this point in my life, uh, my name is Farah Libaini. I see myself as a woman on Wurundjeri land trying to navigate many different facets of who she is, uh, whether it is the fact that I have a chronic illness, whether it is that I love poetry, whether it is that I love uh, creating meaningful social change through conversations uh, that matter. Um, whether it's putting on my economics mind <laughs> to solving some of those big data problems, uh, I see myself ultimately as a human being who really wants to use my time, my limited time in this world to, to make things better. Beautiful. I love that. Um, and I love the, this idea that it's a really difficult question to answer. Mm. And I think that... Um, I just want to pull out that moment that you said right now. This is this is me right now. And I think that that fluidity of identity is something that I really relate to. Um, some people, I think it's more fluid than others, but I just love that acknowledging in that moment. Um, what What is some of the, um, tell me about some of the exciting or interesting or 
pertinent things that you are practicing in your life um at the moment you mentioned to me before the call about moving conversations um and we've also mentioned poetry um what's going on for you in that realm at the moment well it's interesting it goes back to what I'm saying I want to create meaning and I've kind of reshaped what I choose to perform and what I choose to do. So poetry before was, you know, me expressing myself as an artist, me writing about my own personal experiences. I've kind of changed that recently and I've started writing uh, poetry for people who ask me to write it, whether it's about um, they've lost someone they love, mm-hmm. so they want to honour it. So um, that's much more personal and private. Uh, or it's about, um, you know, going through a wedding, you know, they want to have a, a poem honouring their vows. So it's coming at it. Poetry now to me is about, well, how can I help people express their feelings and emotions in a way that's authentic to where they are in their journey? And also sometimes giving voice to some of those difficult social um, choices and changes that go on in their lives. So for instance, one of the I've been helping people write eulogies and one of the eulogies I recently helped with was there was an addiction and someone was becoming increasingly violent to their partner and ended up passing away from an overdose. And so that partner is the one who reached out to me and asked me um, to help them with, with writing the eulogy. So how do you then as a writer move away from your own emotions about that, help that person decide on, well, what is it that you're truly wanting to say and how can we frame it in a way that won't cause you um, difficulties uh, with the relationships around you who haven't yet had the chance to see your window into that experience. So that's that's where I'm operating at in terms of poetry at the moment. And I, I try to subtly change people's views on things by giving them authentic lived experiences, whether it's my own through disability or whether it's other things. That's how I'm choosing uh, to enter into the poetry world now. So I'm being more deliberate when I choose to to share and who I join and things like that. For moving conversations, it came out of what I was seeing as a real yearning and I see it fleecy in a lot of how your um, followers, what they're saying, a real yearning for conversations, a real yearning for going, look, something's wrong with our society. We're not able to even communicate. So um, how can I f- learn? And what, that's what I've been trying to practice is learning how to facilitate those spaces in a way that allows people who hold very different views and perspectives on life to still be able to go, oh, I've learned something new today. I don't agree with everything, but I've, I'll take it away and think about it. So that's what Moving Conversations is about. It's about creating a space for courageous community conversations on things that affect our health and well-being. And that could be things like even trying to find our purpose, um, anxiety, self-compassion, and ultimately where I want to see Moving Conversations grow is to be able and I'm taking my time with this as a facilitator because there's a lot of responsibility with that to talking about racism in places like Australia. That's the ultimate aim, but we've got to take those tentative steps towards that first. Mm. Oh, there's so much in here that I want to pull out of those many things that you've spoken about. Um, one of, okay, so writing other people's stories is a huge thing. So I'm going to go in order. <laughs> 
writing some of people's stories and eulogies and, and talking putting words to grief is such a huge thing even for person people who are in grief who have the first-hand experience of it um what was that like for you having those conversations with people who wanted eulogies written like what is a conversation like that how do you hold a conversation like that? So interesting that you said that. I didn't do this on purpose. We just let <laughs> for the listeners, this isn't. But um, I just wrote an article for the Grief Cocoon. So you know Gabby Georges, she runs the Grief Cocoon, and I stepped how I did that. So there's five steps that I took to kind of, and that was only after experience going through. Then I said, oh wow, that's what it's really how to help a friend write a eulogy is the title of it because I felt that was actually a gap, and that was part of us not knowing how to help our friends grieve you know, how to hold that space. So the first thing that I said was leave your shoes at the door. Mm, I get full body tingles when you said Step that. Into their shoes, understand their story. Um, figure out also what you're capable, like be very clear in, in what you can contribute. So um, one thing I call out in that article, I say like I'm from a Middle Eastern culture and part of that is A, you have to accept death, it's fate you know, and B, you cannot speak ill of the dead. You cannot, you know, it's really strong. And I've noticed it actually in other cultures as well. There's a very strong reaction to do not speak ill of the dead. Now, how do you then authentically help that person who's gone through, like I said, those experiences where that person has harmed them? And so then it's about, or another step that I put in there is using liberating words. And that's what poets are really good at, right? So when I said right now at the start, that's what, that's a liberating, what I classify as a liberating word. So things like um, saying phrases like, I won't always feel this way, but right now I am feeling. Or the one with that friend that I mentioned, they ended up saying, at your best, you were a, at your best, you were a. And then I wish society could do X, Y, Z to deal with this mm. issue. So recognising the individual versus the social. And those are the liberating words I would really encourage us all to be using in any conversation that we're holding, right? So um, so that's kind of what's helped me. It was challenging, I'm not going to lie. Like even as a poet, the ego comes out. So, you know, one of the, one of the eulogy poems, the construction of it, I had this particular way I was constructing, you know, like the idea, building the images and everything. And the person came back and said, that doesn't feel authentic to their story. It broke the pattern of the poem that I was trying to construct, but that was true to their story. And they liked the poem as it was. And so I said, that is what the honest poem should be. And I let go of my ego. And that's the step one I was talking about, leaving your your um, shoes at the door. So it's, this is what I mean. It's, it's a, there's a lot of processing and a lot of, there's a lot of sitting with yourself and figuring out what's my motivation in this? How can I separate my motivation from what the person needs and wants of me at that point in time? Mm, mm. I love this idea of the um, liberating words. And it's something I think I've actually been doing without realizing it. Yeah. I do it a lot with So when, um, when my kid was really little and there's this whole idea of like what's your favorite color and she'd be like mommy what's your favorite color and I'd be like well today my favorite color is yeah. and it gives this idea of of yeah again it's that 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 space for nuance it's a space for change it's a space for movement and I think we live in a world that is so 
it's it's obsessed with permanence in some level, you know, which is maybe going back to this idea of death. Maybe this is one of the reasons why we're so afraid of talking about it. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge because <laughs> that we crave certainty, but the, at the same time hate normalcy. <laughs> You know, so it's, I find it really fascinating, the human condition. We get bored and it's like, well, you wanted us, if you want a certain world, then you, you know, why are you so frustrated? Like it's, it's, I find it really, really funny. Like how, um, us humans are always like, there's something we're upset about or, you know, but it kind of helps us also figuring out, oh, that's where that child self, you know, I go back to my child. So that's where that child self is hurting or that's where that they're not expressing themselves or they want to get a bit rowdy. You know, they, they want to, um, uh, you know, colour outside the, the lines. That's what we want. We want to colour outside the lines, but we want to know the lines are there still as our safety blanket. So it's like, that's how I see it. Um, so it's just figuring out, well, how can we learn how much we can colour outside the le- the lines and what lines do we need? You know, so it's, it's, that's, I, I always try to create images for myself, like to, to kind of figure out what I'm feeling. And that's, maybe that's the poet in me, Lucy, but um, yeah, it certainly helps. I, I liked earlier when you said that even as a poet, the ego, God, I was like, well, that's all we, poets are so ego like, <laughs> Anyway, that's what we do. We write about ourselves and there's a lot of ego. And I think it's a beautiful, there's this real like, um, social dampening on the concept of ego but I think that there's a beautiful exploration when we come at it with this more open loving um yes the gentleness when we talk about this idea of fierce gentle which is you know the podcast's name for me the fierce gentle that I see in you is I see so often um you you have a real I've seen you so many times really lay down your boundaries mm. and what your needs are and I've seen it in some really powerful ways and I'll tell you one in a minute that really stands out for me um, but every time you do it you come you are like this kind of glowing beacon of love as you do it I just see you that there's been times that I've been in like torment and you've come to me as this like glowing love to me. Uh, and I love that about you. And one of the moments that that really stands out for me is um, I was judging the Melbourne Spoken Word Awards one year and you were one of the uh, competitors, I guess would be the term. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you were getting up on stage and due to, I mean, I'm sure you can unpack it more, but um, due to your, how you were feeling in that moment, how your body was feeling in that moment, you requested for the stage lights to be off as you performed. And, you know, as a judge and as an audience and knowing that we're in a competition, I, I understand how that could be such a, it's like a, it's almost sacrificing the potential of sacrificing your place in the potential of competition for the need, for your body's needs in that moment. And um, I want to kind of talk about this for a moment, this piece. That What was that moment like? like tell, tell me about your experience of that moment because I only know it as a judge watching. Yeah. Oh, it's funny that that was – there are moments in our lives that come in and they, they are such um, framing moments. They're the ones that make you think, what am I doing? Um, and – so just so for the listeners who don't know, I have um, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And what that does to my body, um, and you can imagine from, a, you know, Fleecy from performing how much energy that takes, but 
Um, and I have a poem that I wrote specifically to kind of explain that lived experience. But um, for me, my body starts shutting down um, because it's hypersensitized to everything, to every sensation, to noise, um, to um, like lights, to heat, to everything. And that day I remember it. I had, and it took so much energy. I practiced my, I don't, you know, for anyone who's watched me, often I, I read off the page because that is a way I can serve my energy. So I can create the feelings I need when I talk to people. It's not because I can't memorize, it's because it helps me being able to perform um, because it's so taxing on me to memorize. Um, recall is really hard when you have chronic fatigue. So, um, but that time I said, I'm going to give this my best. People have voted me. I'm going to try. I, I don't, I don't put myself up for competitions cause it's taxing, but I'm going to try this year because, you know, um, I was nominated and, and it's a, it's a moment. It's nice. Like, and from an ego perspective, I'm like, I want to win, you know, <laughs> I want to play somewhere for once, like, because I don't, um, you know, it's so hard to compete, um, and the way that I write is different from, I guess, the way that often is is what is um, awarded and rewarded. So, um, so I did so much work to memorize it, and I did. I memorized it and everything, and even the movements. I practiced my movements for a week and everything. And then it came to that day, and I was fine um, up until I was, you know, I had meditated. I had taken care of myself, but then I don't know if you remember, Fleecy. It was very hot that day, so I hadn't been predicting that. And the night, um, the, that was the other thing. Problem was it was at nighttime and I have my fatigue. So I had asked them if I could perform early again. So I think I had, I can't remember, I should have if I hadn't. But, um, you know, it was all those factors like, um, you know, and it was so hot. It was so hot that my body, I could feel it. I was like, my body's shutting down. And so the heat started affecting me. The lights, the lights were so bright for me. I was in the one of the first rows because I was a performer. I had to keep stepping away um, and I t- was trying my best not to make my other poet friends know that I was going through that because they were in the middle of preparing themselves. Like Natalie, who won that year, like she was trying to look after me. I'm like, please, like, no, it's okay. You know, I'm trying not to show them how sick I was getting. Like I was so – and I had to hang in there and I knew. I was like – I had – and I had – the thing is like I'd done it within three minutes. I'd done it through – like all that – but. Couldn't like the energy was like as I went on stage, my energy started getting sapped. My energy was going. I could I could feel it like everything in my body, and um, so I just had to go. You know what? I want to honor this poem. This poem I wrote for my my mother, my you know my grandmother, her grandma. They were they were they're being erased from history, and I want to honor them. That's why I wrote this. So. I thought I'm going to have to um, keep the the fire within myself long enough to be able to perform this. And that was the only way I could see doing that. So all my movements, I don't know how much you saw. I had practiced movements. I had done all these things. I I, I had to do it for them. So I was... In that moment, I wasn't doing it for the audience. I was was doing it for them. Like, I have to do this for them. So that that was the experience then. And there was a lot of grief after that. I cried a lot after that because I realized I can't do this. I can't do competitive performance. And I was sick for two weeks. I could barely get out of bed for a week after that from all the energy and stuff. So that was the experience I had of that moment. Um, 
But I guess, um, and this is where I always, you know, having a strong understanding of self, you know, that's where the true resilience comes from and understanding what value that brings the world. So for me, it was that woman's story that I am here channeling a woman's story, a Middle Eastern woman's story that gets erased um, by lack of, um, you know, storytelling um, and uh, writing down the names of them, you know. Um, so just for the listeners, in that story, I recite the names of all of the women because in our um, traditions we um, remember all the names of the men in our family but we don't write down the women. And so, yeah, so I was trying to collect all the stories and retell them. So that was my experience, Fleetie. Yeah, just so you know, I'm taking some notes of some of the things I want to get links for. I think that poem, would you possible to give us a link for that poem? Because yeah, I'd love to in the show notes it's such your experience was yeah it's it's so um I'm trying to think of the right word it's it's really powerful for me to hear your end of that story I remember sitting there and watching and I didn't know why the lights were off and I thought at first I thought that's a really interesting choice and then as it went on, I began to tweak what was going on and why I thought it was an artistic choice at first. And then I realized what was going on. And I just remember feeling such admiration for your courage, for the courage to do that, to make that choice. And I think that um, bringing it into this idea of the courageous voice and what you said, it's like this knowing of yourself and to be able to say that, to be able to turn around and so to own that for yourself, to admit that to ourselves in these moments, that these are my needs. And actually that is the that is the best thing for me to do right now is this. And then to be able to speak those needs and, and make that ask in that space is such a, it's an act of courage to do that. Um, and, yeah, it's always stood, it's always stood in me as, as a, a really poignant memory of you. Thanks, Felicia. I really appreciate the outside of you because, you know, obviously we, we internalise a lot, so it's nice to hear it from you as well to round out mm. my experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And as a judge, that, that definitely, like, played into for me because that's something that I look at. I look at courage. I look at, you know, what risk is the performer taking right now? Um, and if I know an, a performer outside of that moment on stage, it is really hard for me to, as you said, leave my shoes at the door because I know these people. I know the journeys that they've been on. And and you, um, having been like a previous student of mine and witnessing mm-hmm. your journey, I don't know, a student, a participant of one of my courses, right, seeing you in your journey and in that moment, it's, it's impossible for me to it was really hard for me to in, eliminate those pasts of these poets to see mm-hmm. the risks of people are taking when they're on stage mm-hmm. um you mentioned that you have a poem yes about that experience this feels like a really seamless segue <laughs> <laughs> as if we planned no we didn't. <laughs> as if we planned it, yeah, we didn't actually plan that I did know in advance that there was a poem but I feel like this is a really poignant moment to bring that in would you be comfortable this isn't just to clarify this isn't the poem that you spoke on stage that day no. but I will put a link in the show notes to that poem you did a beautiful video that was the hyenas poem yeah yeah taming hyenas taming yeah. hyenas oh, such like it gives me full body tingles every time i hear it um and you did a beautiful collaboration video for and that, that was poem. For, that was for mother tongue i i that was for women of fire i, I wrote it for you for that 
but on purpose. So that's why there's references to fighters. It was so I feel like we're we're kind of coming full circle on this one, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I've got full body tingles again. <laughs> Because I remember you getting on the stage. I remember the sand art happening live on stage. I remember all of it. Um, so, so poignantly. Um, but this poem is the one that you actually requested to bring, which is more about the your experience of living with disability, right? Yeah. So I haven't said this in a while, so let's see how I go. It's called Knit Curl. And I dedicate it to Sarah. Sorry, um, can we pause just for a sec? I think I've left yep. notifications on, so I have to leave that off and sign out. Okay. All right, so this poem is called Nick Curl, and I dedicate it to Sarah. I wake up. I hover over the sink and push the tap handle down. I watch the hot water wrap itself around the hollow of my cup. My skin is burning. I do not put it under cold water. I pick up the needles, yank at the yarn. Mouths open and close, open and close open and close, waiting to be fed. I wake up. I remember to release the tap just before it overflows. I place my cup on the kitchen table and tie the thread of my chamomile tea bag around its handle. My skin is still tender. I pick up the needles. Mouths gnaw at metal. I unravel again. I wake up. I watch my tea bag round its shoulders and sink to the bottom of my cup, inking the water soft yellow. My skin is peeling. I pick up the needles. Pull the yarn closer to my chest. Mouths click clack against metal. I wake up. My tea bag puffs its chest out like an airbag. The thread is barely visible in the deepening yellow. My skin is itching. I pick up the needles and catch the loop, and catch the loop, and catch the loop. My fingers weave mouths through metal. I wake up. I gently tug at the thread and bring the tea bag closer to the surface. The morning light lingers on softened skin. I pick up the needles and close the loop, and close the loop, and close the loop. The mouths are silent. My tea bag's head bobs in the warm water, facing the world sunny side up. Mmm. Mmm, beautiful. 
Can I share what was in there for me when I listened? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, I just hear that it's such, it feels like such um, a dedication to the almost monotony, but yet a continual changing experience of day-to-day life of how every day is the same but different and it's got this new chat that I don't know that's just just what came up for me and I don't know if that's what you were writing but listening to it that's what I, f- I felt this kind of and also a, a feeling of coping as well like the the knitting reminds me of coping for me when I do things like that as a coping mechanism it felt like a metaphor but also actually what it was at the same time um but I would love to hear if, if you want to share anything about it um so with chronic fatigue, it limits your movements. So lockdown for me, I've experienced that way before this. Um, so your world, literally, the only energy you could have is to make a cup of tea in a day. That mm. could be it. And so observing that world and trying to find something in it mm. um, and observing your strength return. Mm. And for me, knitting was um, coming back to to world, to the bigger world. So knitting my life around that experience and I'm not a good knitter. I hate knitting, but <laughs> there's a lot of holes in when I knit. But um, it just reminded me of like the patience, the rows that you're building and and um, sometimes you have to put the needles down and sometimes you have to go back up. And like when I was talking about the mouths, for me it's like all the things that I haven't done that I can't do and they're yelling at me to be done and I couldn't do them. And over time, I can do them. So the patience and the knowing that you can do them, you just need to ride the wave. Um, and I didn't want to talk about waves. I wanted to do something a bit different, to tug at two different images. Um, and the yellow was really important for me because that was the sun. So um, I always tried to go out even just um, just outside my door and just see the sun to get some sun. Um, so seeing, being able to fully experience the sun that was the end. So it's kind of like I'm playing at a lot of different images that are really meaningful to me, but putting them in a way that others can relate to, I guess. So I'm really glad that mm. knitting for you is something that brings comfort. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, for me, with my mental health struggles um, and with my body struggles as well, I guess through the sickness and pregnancy, it was yarn work, crocheting and knitting. Mm. And also just just small craft, like handcrafting, collaging, things like this, that really keeps me back connected with myself Mm -hmm. when it's like something to remove me out of my head when it's my mental health stuff Mm -hmm. and it's something manageable that I can do with my body. For example, when I'm having iron crashes or when I had the hyperemesis, Mm -hmm. it's something that my body can function with and do that keeps me feeling like I belong. Yeah. Yeah. In a world where I can't do anything else, it's like, well, I belong. I've got this me and there's my crochet yeah. and I have a reason for existing right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, the experience of living with disability, I mean, speak to, can you speak to that a little bit for me? Um, you said before we had the call, you said something around like that, the, the the intersections of your of your identity as someone who lives with a disability and someone from Middle Eastern background and and a poet these these and you've already kind of spoken a bit to it like like living within a poetry community being immersed in a poetry community that's so focused on performance and live events and how that intersecting with other parts of your identity it can be is challenging and I mean you had to find new ways to 
approach it. Can you speak more to that um, around other parts of your Yeah, I think, um, so I come from a Lebanese background, um, Lebanese Muslim background, and what's good that's happening is that the conversations are getting better around disability and, um, you know, understanding a little bit more about what that means and how our culture can support that. Um, But I still feel a lot of people have a long way to go um, in in accepting it. So um, even me saying that I have a disability um, is a big deal, you know, and so I choose those words on purpose whereas I know others um, in other communities may not choose to use the word disability. But I'm choosing to use it because that's where the conversation is at within my community. We're not there yet. We're not at that point of greater understanding and awareness. So we have to take our community with us on the journey to understanding. And it's people within the community that can speak often the most. And the good thing for me, and, and this is, I guess, you know, people could use the word privilege or people can use the word access or, you know, the platform is that, you know, on the veneer, sorry, the veneer of it is that I'm this, you know, can pass as white or I can pass like I'm an economist at the end so I can, you know, talk in a specific way and, you know, and then I go, oh, and I have a disability. And it kind of completely throws people off when they see that. So there's a power in that, right? How I then navigate that within a Middle Eastern culture is it's a harder conversation. It's actually the hardest conversation because, um, you know, some people within, you know, whether it's the culture or the religion or misinterpretations especially of culture and religion, they see a disability sometimes as as punishment for the past and or things like that in really awful ways of thinking about things. Or not awful but um, not deep enough. It's not deep enough. And and the problem with that is then we don't imagine how we can actually create a better world. We put it all on the individual and not as a society. How Well, how can we um, create a healthier, happier world? So my speaking up about it or me writing this poem or me talking about my, you know, Middle Eastern women is me protesting in my own very specific way from a point of respect, not from a point of disservice to my community because I still absolutely love my community and I want to belong to it, but I need them to also grow with me. So um, I feel like there's a lot of opportunities for us to grow as a, as a culture. And if I can um, show that you can be successful, um, that disability doesn't always have to be a, like a physically obvious or visible thing, um, then I'm hoping that breeds compassion and, and empowers others who are silent in their struggle, even if they don't want to say that they're struggling with it, to go, there is someone out there I can talk to. Mm. I love that. I love this. Again, it's that fierce gentle, right? It's yeah. the being within a community that you love and you respect, but you can see that part of your identity is not fully accepted in that space. So how do we bring with love and respect, awareness within our communities to the, to those parts of our identity. Um, does that feel like a fair affair? Absolutely. And um, I learned a hard lesson once about this within my community. Um, so I once hosted a um, or supported hosting a poetry event involved within my community, and I was silly. And, and really, really, it was a silly mis- 
silly and and just showed that even that even if someone like me with a disability can also make decisions that affect other disabled people but I didn't realize that the and I but to be fair as well I hadn't seen the venue and I wasn't the one responsible for the venue um but I didn't think of the impact on that person in that point in time and uh, so that person was from my culture and hadn't spoken to me didn't share with me that they um didn't feel comfortable going up on stage in a particular time or needed a break. So what ended up happening was this painful moment where they had to go up on stage with their physical disability and, you know, in front of everyone in a way that I think would have been painful for them to do that in front of their community. And that was a big light bulb moment for me in going, wow, this person who I absolutely respect and who's actually was leading that conversation, it wasn't me, I was supporting the poetry part, didn't didn't share that with me, didn't feel comfortable sharing that with me. Um, and I understood why that was the case because it's very not open, it's not spoken about this this stuff. Like we, we in, in our culture, we speak about things in a roundabout way. So I hadn't picked up that cue and I hadn't done um, my homework in figuring out, well, how can I create that safe space for that person? So now I'm deeply conscious of that experience and figuring out, well, how can I create that um, space for other people? And it will, even though it wasn't at that point my responsibility, but I believe that all of us have that responsibility to helping everyone feel um, valued and loved and, and coming from a point of also um, – you know, uh, dignity, giving them like the dignity of, of, you know, feeling empowered to participate. So, yeah, so that was a big teachable moment for me that I constantly refer back to um, and remind myself of that, you know, to ask those questions, to figure those things out in case someone else hasn't or doesn't feel comfortable doing so. And that there is, what that does is actually create a better world. So it's those micro moments that we can change the world. Mm. I love you said about ask those questions and that to me is a perfect little seamless kind of (laughs) (laughs) link for me because when I think of you, one of your key skills that I see is your capacity to ask questions and I've seen you do it in a few different ways. platforms I saw you ask I see you you went through a whole phase I don't know if you're still doing it because algorithms will show me everything but you went through a whole phase of asking questions on social media um and really open questions really open-ended questions and and I I I mean I hate when people ask questions and I can tell they're doing it to try and like boost their algorithm and I'm like I'm not fucking answering your question (laughs) (laughs) but I don't want to like I feel I feel tricked but with you and your questions there was it wasn't that it was there were always questions it felt like on this kind of search for deeper understanding and so I always felt compelled to to answer to give my input in and you I always saw a huge engagement in that and then the other place that I noticed you asking questions was we went to a um poetry event that that I was performing at um, about death and grief, funnily enough, circling back around to near the beginning of our conversation. And part of it was to actually have conversations in small groups. And you were just so good at drawing out people's truths through your questions. They would say something and you would lean in. I have a memory of you like putting your shoulders on your knees, leaning forward and like 
asking them to go a bit deeper with that like not don't not saying go deeper but asking them a question that drew them into their depth and I want to ask you what is it about asking questions for you why why questions um one of my biggest motives in life is seek first to understand before being understood mm. and you actually um, and maybe it's also me as um, an economist and, you know, economists make a lot of assumptions about the world and they're dangerous assumptions that create a lot of issues. So we've seen that. We know what, you know, you can see it and you live it. And I hate assumptions. Um, assumptions are, um, there are big hidden ones in how even COVID, how we're responding. So what I try to do is, first of all, to be able to hold a conversation with anyone, you need to understand them. So asking questions is a great way of, of letting them speak first, letting them have the opportunity to, to show what they want to show off their world. And then you can have a meaningful conversation. If you don't want a meaningful conversation, don't ask questions, just point your views and that's it. And often you don't get anywhere in terms of real engagement. Um, what I learned, and this is something I think you'll enjoy, Felicity, is because, yes, I did ask a whole series of questions, which a lot of them were, you know, some people would tell me to ask those questions and I'd then reframe them in a way that are accessible and inclusive um, but still were authentic to what that person was asking. But some of them were what I saw are gaps in our understanding of society and allowing a platform where people can be exposed to different views and points of view and because I knew that people respected me, and this is where, that's where social media, you can't get that unless you're careful, having those localised conversations with your friends and, and their circles is where you facilitate that respectful dialogue. You can't do that with strangers. I haven't seen that easily done with strangers unless you have an actual, like what I do with moving conversation, a facilitated conversation, right? But you, as long as you maintain some kind of nexus with a res person that people respect, then people are a little bit more careful in, in how they then frame back and how they respond to views that are not the same. Because I never told people how to, how to interact with each other, but they innately wanted the conversation to, they could see the value. They wanted the conversation to continue going. And they knew then, like, I think innately they were like, I don't want to disrespect Farah, but, you know, I really can't stand that view. And then they figured out sometimes I'd I'd lead that by my response to a, I'd, I'd watch for anything that was potentially um, people would be feeling upset. And then I'd engage in the dialogue with that person. So then that was a way that to, to give that um, safe space for others to go, oh, okay, that's how I can do it too. So it's like that kind of thing. One thing I learned from doing those um, open questions. So, because I did a lot of analytics afterwards to to learn, because I'm an, <laughs> I'm an economist, like I said. It was amazing, like, to see how many interactions, how many, who were the people who were posting most. And there was one person, I was like, why am I not seeing this person? Why is their name not coming up there? I know that they've engaged. I've seen them. And then I figured out the roles that different people play in a conversation. You have people who directly answer the question, they just want to provide their point of view. You have people who then engage in that person's conversation, but you have another group of people who link people to each other. That was my my friend. And I was like, that's what you're doing. You are the important glue. You're the one who's connecting really different people together. Mm -hmm. That's how ideas then, then disperse and generate. 
It's those like, you know, it's like what a bee does, cross-pollinates. So it's, those are the really important people. So you, in a conversation, it's not just the two people engaging. It's that third person who might be listening, who then takes that idea and goes, look what I heard. You need to talk to this person. And hey, look, that person is actually critical. So that's why I think like open-ended questions, not only you've got circles around them, who answers their friends who look at it. Like it's actually, that's how it creates that kind of bigger conversation. So um, yeah, I'm working towards understanding the art of conversation through these things. And it's just taught me, I think I'm just still at the start, but there's still so much to unpack. So um, yeah, there's a lot of analytics going on in my mind <laughs> about how to, how to take this further. But it's, yeah, that was one of the insights I gained from from doing those um, questions. In a very respectful way, I find that very hot. Like, <laughs> like the idea that you have all the analytics in your brain. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. Like, it gets me juicy. And I love it because I find people so interesting. Yeah, I really are. do. And and it's interesting because I, I primarily really like the sound of my own voice, right? So I'm someone who talks a lot. But I also am fascinated by the interactions between people. And so when I hear you saying that, I hear your fascination in these interactions between people. And we are coming close towards the end of our 45 minutes, hour long episode. And we've got another 15 minutes before we hit an hour. But in that, I think I want to kind of steer the conversation a bit um, with this idea of, of, you know, this idea of conversations and, and how, to, how do we have good conversations? And if we're going to take what we, you and I have been talking about here, the points that you talked about around the intersections of experience, around um, living with disability, around bringing voices in all different places together to have, you know, because so often those places, those kinds of, I see them as difficult conversations, okay? They're difficult conversations to have. And I have my own theories around what makes uh, it easy to have difficult conversations. And then you're talking around liberating Liberating words. words. Um, If the people listening want to have better conversations to be more courageous in how they connect with other people what's what let's say advice I don't know if advice is the right word but what what would you put out towards that if people wanted to have better conversations and to um yeah if people wanted to to have better conversations what is your advice to them that's the key thing is knowing what your purpose is in engaging in conversations. Because if you're not careful, your ego takes over or your, so you have to understand yourself first and what you're doing in in entering that space. What are you, what are your fears? What are your motivations? Understand and, and, and really understand, well, what are you trying to achieve through that? The second thing, and this is what's helped me a lot is, um, Recognize it's just one conversation of many. It doesn't have to be the only conversation. It's not the last word, you know. Um, And I guess um, the other thing, and this one is what liberates me, this is my liberating word for myself, is I'm not always the teacher for this person, right? that person, it might be someone else who's can teach that lesson or if it's the right lesson for that person. I don't know enough about that person. Even if I've lived with them, I still don't know fully what they're going through. So having the grace to go, you know what, I have offered something. This is, you know, in, in my humble view of what I understand of the world, 
this is how I see things. I'm grateful for you sharing your perspective and I thank you for that time. And not not always expecting that there will be an outcome or a resolution because I'll give you one example that might might help with this. And I didn't realise until later that it was actually something that made a difference. So I was, um, and this is a work context, but it's important. So, you know, I worked, I work in a very fast paced environment. And at that point in time, I was promoted to helping, you know, to directing the team, you know, just to support it while my manager was away. And we were so under the pump, so under the pump. And I had work coming at my team, like just from everywhere. And one of the managers, other managers in the team was like, Vera, we've just gotten this person to come join our team. Give them any work that you have that, you know, they can support you with. I'm doing the same. And I paused and I said to them, thank you. That's, it's really kind of you to be seeing what I'm going through and what I'm managing um, and trying to help me. But your team has a lot of stuff on and that's the priority. And I don't want that person to be so overwhelmed with work on their first week in the job that they don't enjoy working with us. I don't want to them that for them to have that experience. Now the, the manager disagreed with me at that, that point, but respected my decision because you know I was I was and I really appreciated that because you know sometimes those things you know people start disagreeing. But she that was really important for me that she supported my decision even though she didn't completely agree. On the, that person's last day, um, the the person who was who'd come to join the team, um, we were farewelling them, and my my manager had come back, and we we're all sitting and we we're saying how great they had been. And then that manager who who disagreed but respected my decision, she spoke up and she said um, to that person, "You have a lot to thank Farah for." You know, um, I thought about what she said, and I realised she was right. And that's why, like, you ended up with this amount of work, not that amount of work. And then that person was surprised. I was surprised. I didn't even expect that person to say that. And I didn't even realise that they thought about it for that long period of time. But then that person said, thank you, Farah. That actually means a lot to me that you supported me at that point in time. Like, they really appreciated it. I had no window into that. I could have never had that window into that moment. But that person chose to share it. And you don't know that. You don't know what that person, whether they'll mull over it or whatever it is, but what you can do is let them sit with it. Give them that and say, sit with it, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to approach it again, but I just wanted to share that with you. So let them, let them figure it out for themselves. You don't have to check in, you know, just let them, because often that's what happens. Mm. And it feels like a, a surrendering of control of an outcome. Mm. It's like I'm not here to fix you, but I can give my input. And what you do with that is yours. Exactly. Yeah, so good. Because so often we try, it's again, it's this like, um, I feel like, I don't know if it's a, a cultural thing specific to the culture that we live in here in Australia and that I was brought up in in England, or if it's just like a human thing, but this like, we get so obsessed with, with like, fixing <laughs> it's like fixing things yeah. and we someone comes to us and we 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 I mean on some level I think it's a human thing when we look at human humans we've just the reason we've got to the position we are as humans is because we've seen problems and solved them yeah um but it's that real surrendering that we don't have to solve other people's problems mm. but we can be there to share our experience and share our truth and leave that with them and trust it's a trust as well isn't it it's a trust that this person 
is, you know, is a fully formed person enough to make their own choices. Yeah. 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 I'm just going to adjust this for a second. That's okay. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we are coming to, we're going to come to the end of the call now. Um, but is there anything, last things that you would like to say or share before we do? Um, no, I am so excited, Fleecy, that you're doing this. Um, I really love the title, Fierce Gentle, and I think it's very authentic to what you're helping make a difference in this world. And I can't wait to hear the other people who you're going to interview because I know you and I know that they will be really interesting and exciting guests. So I'm super excited to see what comes next. Mm, thank you. Thank you very much. And I would love to get from you the link. Um, I'm sharing this so it's on the recording as well so people know. The link to the article that you write about helping people um, write eulogies yeah. and also the link to your Taming Hyenas. Is that what it's called, Taming yeah, Hyenas? Taming Hyenas. And also, if it's okay, also the Moving Conversations podcast just so that they can, if there are any questions on that as well, I'm more than happy to take them. Absolutely. So I'm just going to, we didn't really mention the podcast. So I'm going to give you a moment now to talk about moving conversations as a podcast. Yeah. So um, for the listeners, moving conversations for me is a much needed home for courageous community conversations on issues that impact our health and well-being. And uh, last year, what we did during COVID was host those conversations with the Centre for Building Better Community. And so we've recorded those conversations, which were held on Wurundjeri land. Um, and now they're available in a podcast. And so the conversations that are already out are journeying with anxiety, finding purpose and um, self practicing self-compassion. And there's an upcoming one on grief, so grief and grieving, which is perfect timing because um, next month there's Grief Awareness Week, so or month, I can't remember. There was There's quite a few of them, but, you know, that's the next one and it should be coming out um, the first Tuesday of August. So um, watch the space and I know Fleecy will uh, share the links. And if anyone has any questions, please don't uh, hesitate to contact Moving Conversations Facebook page and sometimes I share on Insta as well. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. And the exciting thing is that when this podcast comes out, that all those will already be available because oh, this cool. podcast starts <laughs> in August. So actually right now you can just go to the link yeah. you're listening in the, in the show notes and just click on it and you can have a listen to those podcasts because they'll already be there. So awesome. that is awesome. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Farah. Thank you, Fleecy. Thank you, listeners. <laughs> Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Fierce Gentle, the Courageous Voice podcast, hosted by myself, Fleecy Malay, and music and editing done by Rory McDougall. If there's anything you've heard in this podcast that you like the idea of, check out the show notes below for links. And if you want to see this podcast continuing, please consider joining me over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Fleecy. 